My name is Nicholas Perkins. I'm a university lecturer in medieval English and I'm a fellow here at St Hugh's College in Oxford. My current research is mostly about what we call medieval romance, which is a huge topic and were one of the main ways of transmitting myth and narrative and history and all sorts of things like that from about the 12th century, or well really to the present day, but in the medieval context, right through into the 15th and 16th centuries. And more specifically, what I've got interested in is what happens in these stories when people give gifts to one another, when objects circulate in narratives, and when people or protagonists in the stories themselves can be read as if they're gifts circulating between communities, developing obligations and value as they go, being passed on from one person to another, sometimes against their will, and also then sometimes coming back home at the end of a story. So romances typically have, in inverted commas, a happy ending, they're comedies in a classical sense from that point of view. But those endings, a little bit like Shakespeare's comedies, are often quite problematic and they involve sacrifices and compromises. And treating objects and people both as parts of exchanges between communities and between families is one way of thinking a little bit more carefully about what's happening, what's at stake in those so-called happy endings. In the happy endings, do the objects get returned to their rightful owner? Yes, very often that's true. And sometimes there are pairs of objects. So, for example, a broken sword, the two pieces of which get combined. Or in one sort of French story, I could think of a knot which cannot be undone except by the person who's done it up. Or in some stories, something like, you know, a chastity belt and its key, <laughs> which, you know, symbolically and in all sorts of ways can only be unlocked by the appropriate person. So sometimes these objects are also people their lovers, for example, who get separated and who in weird and wonderful ways travel around the known world to the exotic Orient and then come home again and find their true love. Or perhaps a child is reunited with its parents having been orphaned and cast away at the beginning of its life. Perhaps because it's been, been born out of wedlock. And you're doing an exhibition at the moment about romance. We put on an exhibition in 2012 at the Bodleian which looked at how medieval romance has been transmitted and read and enjoyed not only in the medieval period but right through to the present day. And the Bodleian Library is one of the best places to study and to look at these kinds of things. Working in the English faculty, as I do, the Bodleian has a big proportion of medieval manuscripts of English romances. And um, so we could have a look at those. We wanted to display not only some of the most magnificent and, and beautiful manuscripts from the Middle Ages, many of which do have romances in, and the Bodleian has some of those. But also look at how romance was a popular form as well, very often actually transmitted orally, by which I don't just mean sort of the idea of the, the medieval minstrel, you know, just getting up and speaking ad lib. But these stories were known, they were part of the repertoire um, of storytellers, and they were passed around in families and communities as well. Now, by definition, if that happens, we don't then have a written record of it always. But we do also have very modest bits of manuscript, little books, which can contain more straightforward or, or simple uh, romances. Sometimes these are written for children. So romance ranges from those simple products right up to really elaborate and expensive and very complex works of literature as well. The kinds of things that we then more often study in English courses like perhaps the best known single romance from the Middle Ages uh, in England, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, or the romances which Chaucer included in the Canterbury Tales, or Chaucer's own masterpiece Troilus and Crusade, which in some ways is, is a romance as well as all sorts of other things as well. 
well. So the exhibition looked at those. It looked at objects also which carry romance stories, so works of art, things like ivory carvings and jewellery and painting, which also have some of the famous romance stories like that of Tristan and Isert or King Arthur, Lancelot and Guinevere, those kinds of stories that still are actually very much at the front of our the myths that we tell one another and that we're interested in. You only have to look at something like, you know, Merlin or something that's been on television recently, or Arthurian stories and ideas, you know, more, more generally, to see that those are very long-lasting mythologies that have continued to interest people right up to the present day. And for me, I spend most of my time obviously working on the literature of that period. It was really fascinating to be able to have a look at what's there in museums and galleries uh, around the country, to talk to the curators uh, of those places like the British Museum and the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, and also the Ashmolean Museum here in Oxford, to ask if we could borrow some of the things and to try and see how they might relate to the literature of the period as well. And also to give visitors, people who don't necessarily have access to precious manuscripts in libraries, to give them the chance to see at uh, first hand what these things actually looked like. And I think it's tremendous exciting for people to have that direct contact as it were they couldn't really touch the things but they're very close to them to have that contact with a book that could have been held by Chaucer or that was around in that period and to get that just that little sense of what it was like to experience sort of literary culture during the Middle Ages as well I recently went to the exhibition of the Magical Books exhibition and it was really moving to be able to see the Liber Monstrorum right there mm. which I studied for my degree just there with the illustrations and in Latin and everything. Yes. Yes, um, that's absolutely right. And in a way, that's something that drew me into medieval studies, that excitement of um, still being able to look at these tremendously rare now, in some ways, uh, precious objects. Often objects that were actually quite ordinary then, but which have developed importance as they've gone through, partly because of nearly having been lost or been forgotten about, like something like the Beowulf manuscript that sort of laid around in the library, was nearly burnt, and was only in the 19th century really sort of brought back and it was realised was one of the greatest you know, works of literature that, that we have. And it's great to be able to be involved in a project which not only has a research academic focus, but which also has an aspect of it which can show people what that's like. One of the great things about the exhibition was that we were able to do some other events around it, like draw in school groups primary school children, sometimes sometimes sixth form students, and to have a look at the exhibition, to talk about it and to think about that too. But we also commissioned a new work, if you like, a new piece of storytelling with music from a group called the Devil's Violin Company, and they were retelling stories really from the romance tradition, one of them the kind of folk version of what Shakespeare rewrote as, as King Lear, another was The Wife of Bath's Tale from The Canterbury Tales by Chaucer, and another one was The Franklin's Tale, also from The Canterbury Tales. So Daniel Morden, who's a, a well-known um, storyteller, he kind of reworked those stories into a show with a group of musicians. And that was something we were able to commission as part of the project. And it's still going around on, on, on tour, both in the UK uh, and internationally. So romance is really quite loosely defined genre, if we can use that term. Yes, absolutely. Studying genre in literature is, in one way, it's inevitable because we all, in some senses, want to find a pigeonhole and put a piece of literature there, just even as a holding position, just to say, well, this is how we're going to study it. But genre is also very slippery and um, I think people are realising more and more that genre is very fuzzy around the edges and very often works of literature make a claim to be in a particular genre 
but actually they're often doing that in quite a playful way and they very often are rejecting some aspects of the genre that actually they're, they're inside. I think some people tend to think about the development of genre, that genres start off, as it were, straight and they get more and more complicated and strange and sort of self-referential or comic or ironic as they go through history. But romance is one of the genres, I think, which really disprove that idea, that teleological idea about genre, that we sort of get more complicated and interesting the further on in history we get. Some of the first romances are also some of the most self-aware, some of the most funny, some of the most sort of undercutting and, and ironic as well, especially those by the great 12th century writer Chrétien de Troyes. And in the wake of those, you could do all sorts of things with romance stories. But generally speaking, people tend to think of romance as being written not in Latin, but in the vernacular, so often in French, and then English romances often are translated from French versions. They are written through narratives often of a life, often a hero's life, the classic one we think of as a knight, you know, going out and, and fighting and meeting challenges and then coming back to sort of win a bride or something like that. Often they're also what I think we'd now think of as being more like sort of family sagas as well. They're sometimes passed down generations or they're about the relationship between parents and children or a younger couple and their misunderstanding or problematic parents overbearing fathers are a particular problem in romances. Mothers-in-law also have quite a bad press um, as well. So those are some of the aspects that they're interested in, but they go out into different directions as well. They might be about the Crusades and the interaction between Christian ideology and Muslim or non-Christian ideology. Very often they misunderstand or don't really have any idea about non-Christian beliefs, but whether it's Muslims or whether it's Vikings or whether it's other kinds of monstrous enemies that they invent, they're often testing the limits of what we think of as, as good behaviour or ethical behaviour as against an enemy that might represent something that's, that's wrong or, or bad from that point of view. But in doing so, a lot of romances also are quite inquisitive and quite reflective about the rules and the structures and the ethics that what we call courtly society, it's a very difficult term, but aristocratic or society wants to impose on itself. To go back to our most famous example, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Gawain takes up a challenge from this strange Green Knight. He chops his head off and the Green Knight picks the head up and says, right, come find me in a year's time and I'll return the blow. So on the one hand, you've got Gawain who's like us and the Green Knight who's monstrous. He sort of comes across a castle and stays there for a while and he has a very genial host and the host's wife is even more accommodating and wants to sleep with Gawain. He's being tested in a way which is much more rigorous in a sense and much more subtle about his own ethics and his own belief system than simply a military conflict would allow for. And by the end of the romance, not to give the game away too much, but by the end of the romance, it's really this Green Knight figure who is as much the arbiter of ethics as the Arthurian court, who's shown sometimes in the poem to be a little bit silly. And so it's really very finely poised and it involves all sorts of secular but also religious ideas and brings them together in a way which I think is much more impressive and it's, it's much more powerful because it's contained within a story that's also exciting and interesting. So generically, medieval romance is difficult, the language is difficult, why should we study it? <laughs> well, 
I wouldn't say it's difficult. The genre is mixed and patchwork, but that makes it interesting. The language of, let's say, of Middle English romance, it can be a challenge, particularly a text like Sir Gowen in The Green Knight, whose dialect is from the northwest of Midlands, around Cheshire area. But from my perspective, that challenge is part of the excitement of doing it. And also, I think, the very difference in language, the way in which you can't take for granted that a word means what you think it means in, in 21st century usage, kind of requires you to read more closely. It means you can't get away with just skim reading and assuming you know the, the subtlety of what the language says. Now, actually, you can't really do that when you're reading something from the mid-20th century. You know, you might be reading Graham Greene or George Eliot or Noel Coward or something and reading a conversation in a play or you also really need to be on, on your guard but very often you forget that because the language is easy enough if you like um, to get through it. I think in medieval literature it's really worth the challenge of approaching the language directly and having a think about how words have changed their meaning, how they're under debate at that time how they're changing, how they're different groups or different people with agendas are actually trying to define certain kinds of words in a particular way, a particular kind of classic word that a lot of people pick up on in this period and in this kind of romance is the Middle English word trouth, which we might translate as truth, but can also mean faith or loyalty or a sense of, of self, integrity, we might call it. All of those kinds of things are wrapped up in that. So it's not really a word with one direct meaning, but then when we start to think about it, no word really has one direct meaning or correspondence. And so it's worth investigating those and sort of seeing what their hinterland is, if you like. And would you say, therefore, that the, the main function of medieval romance is to be provocative, to make you think? The main function of it, I suppose you could say, is entertainment. Now, that doesn't rule out being provocative and thoughtful and reflective as well. And I think that's something that literary studies has, to some extent, had to come to terms with only really relatively recently. So in the mid-20th century, in order to sort of be taken seriously as literature and to an extent be taken seriously as literary scholars, people kind of competed to sort of show that their work that they were studying was very serious and it fitted certain kinds of hierarchies, you know, lyric poetry, tragedy, the novel with a capital N, those sorts of, of genres and, and ideas. And medieval romance was often dismissed because it was popular. And the phrase popular romance has sometimes been used up until really quite recently to mean actually not very good stuff. Now, obviously, quality is variable. I'm not saying that all of this material is great literature, but that depends on what you mean by that and how you think about its function in culture and in society. But leaving that aside, I think many of the romance which had previously been dismissed are really because people didn't understand how to read them. They have a different kind of aesthetic. Like folk stories, they're not interested in some of the sort of literary effects that other kinds of genres strive for, but they have a kind of story patterns and repeated formulae which have a kind of power in their own right and sort of build up, they kind of have an accretion of meaning that builds up through repetition, through sort of subversion of that repetition and through other kinds of patterning, which are, which are really important. The great scholar Derek Brewer called these traditional stories, and that idea of the traditional kind of story, whether that comes from the Bible, or whether that comes through medieval romance, or say Shakespeare's late romance plays, which were often based on medieval romance, or other kinds of, of factors like that. I think they have their own kind of power that we need to sort of take an interest in. 
you said earlier about Arthur being very popular medieval romance that you know we now find on TV today as mm. Merlin and I believe one of the things that you're working on at the moment is MRA and that story of that has similarities to Grimm's folk tales and Euro other European folk tales mm. with the sort of creepy father and the daughter yeah. has to run away with a magical cloak or something are there any other conventions of medieval romance that still resonate today yes I think that's that's absolutely right but there are there are, there are lots of them and that in some ways is because romance never really just sort of stopped happening at the end of the Middle Ages. It was still very much being performed, sometimes in versions like plays, being rewritten by people like Spencer in The Fairy Queen and by Shakespeare. And then it carries on being rewritten and transformed in different ways, you know, through the centuries. So in some ways it never goes away. Both the traditional folktale type stories and story patterns, like I said before about family relationships, about the generations, particularly about male and female desire and where the boundaries of those ought to be. I mean, you mentioned the romance um, Emma Ray, and in that story, the main protagonist is a young woman whose father wants to have an incestuous relationship with her. He wants to marry her, and uh, she refuses, and then she's cast out. She gets washed ashore, and for complicated ways, she then ends up marrying this prince, and his mother takes against her and tells him that she's given birth to a monster, even though it's a perfectly healthy baby. And she again gets cast out, and it's only much later that she manages to kind of bring the whole family together. Of course, it's not realistic in any way. It's totally far-fetched, but some of those patterns of rejection and desire and anger and revenge and family relationships and the power of love to sort of heal those rifts are of course fundamental to all sorts of stories and to some extent the novel takes over some of those ideas and some of those developments into prose narrative in later centuries so that's one of the reasons why that stuff's still there the other reason is of course that modern writers read medieval romances and read other kind of medieval um, texts as well and in Oxford in particular people who taught or studied in Oxford have had quite a lot of exposure to, to medieval materials because of the sort of traditions of the course and the university. So writers like C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, like Diana Wynne-Jones, Susan Cooper, The Dark is Rising series, all of those whose work to some extent sort of plays on, of course, Tolkien's absolutely obviously, you know, uses his expertise in medieval literature to kind of construct these new worlds. That has a direct impact on modern fantasy narrative, on romance and stories and so on. And I mean, another quick example, just the end, might be a character who's called Harry Potter that some people may have heard about. And he grows up in a way the kind of story structure is very much similar to some basic story patterns in romance and in folktale you know he's an orphan he's brought up not knowing his own heritage there's magic involved he's got these very problematic kind of foster parents and he's sort of kind of got to make his way like that there are these sort of monstrous elements there's you know there's a kind of heroic quest there are all of those kinds of things which go to make up the narrative. Now, those are basic story patterns which are still very powerful. And of course, they get dressed up in different ways, but they're still things that we're drawn to and which are still part of our kind of literary and artistic culture. It speaks to us somehow. Yeah, absolutely, it does. And I think having read those kinds of things, then going back to read some of the medieval materials, allows you both to see how they're the same and how they're also kind of exciting like that but also what differences there are and what kinds of ideas or ideologies are at play, you know, five, six hundred years ago when, when those similar story patterns were being thought about and produced under different circumstances.